Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and in the alternative because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we continued our look at the closing arguments in the trial, with the beginning of the defense team's summation as delivered by Edward Belinkus. On today's installment, we conclude our examination of Belinkus's closing. That's all coming up, right after the break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As we concluded our last episode, Barrison attorney Edward Bolinkus had reached the part of his summation where he defended expert witness Dr. Charles Hassan's testimony against the attacks of prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn. As we conclude our look at the defense closing, the defense counsel attacks the credibility of the prosecution's expert forensic psychologist, Dr. Lewis Schlesinger. What's really important and what should bother you, what should cause you to throw out Dr. Schlesinger's entire diagnosis is this. He never talked to Michael Barrison's therapist, both Hassan and Simring did interviews with the therapist, a therapist that had treated Barrison on and off for 20 years. Schlesinger testified he looked at some text messages between the two, but never, never talked to her, never even attempted to talk to her. That, I submit, is important. And why is it important? Because you have two doctors, and it's not disputed even by Schlesinger, that a person's prior psychiatric history is important. And a person, just like a regular doctor, have you ever had this before? You ever have family members that have had this or that? It, it's something that's normal in the field, as it is in the medical field, particularly when formulating a current diagnosis. Both defense doctors had stated that based on that interview, that they were provided with information with regards to Michael's history. They were provided with information that Schlesinger never talked about, about traumatic events in his life as a child. Both of those doctors said that it's important and may make someone more susceptible to issues later on in life. Is that an outrageous, unreasonable statement? Or is it common sense? Use your everyday experiences. Dr. Schlesinger, the state's doctor, never mentioned that Michael Barrison's mother physically abused him. Never mentioned that Michael Barrison was sexually molested over and over again. 
Dr. Slesser never mentioned that his therapist had indicated he had issues with delusions prior to this incident. The same diagnosis, or related to the same diagnosis, as Dr. Simring and Dr. Hassan had testified to. How can you just leave that out? The state's doctor's position, and we're going to address this, is basically that Michael Barrison's fears are real. That both Barrison and other members believe that Lauren Canarak's threat to kill was real and reality-based. Is he saying that Lauren Canarak is a danger? Is he saying that Lauren Canarak and Robert Goodwin had the wherewithal to kill Michael Barrison, his girlfriend, and their children? If that's the case, if that's something that that doctor can glean just from reviewing the police reports as to what happened, why didn't Washington Township Police Department, why didn't the Morris County Prosecutor's Office intercede in the numerous times when Michael Barrison told them he was in fear, told them that Lauren Canaract was dangerous, tried to show him all the posts and information that Dr. Schlesinger said clearly indicates that she is a danger and a danger is eminent. Remember, those two people are the state's case. Dr. Schlesinger then tries to bolster his, his, his opinion by saying, well, because other staff members also felt threatened, that, that proved his point. That, that's ridiculous. Ridiculous. Every person is different. You don't need to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist to understand that. Some people are more susceptible to others. Look at all the people that you know. You know, is somebody stronger? Does someone handle stress dif differently? Everybody is unique. Past medical history is also important. Dr. Hassan testified that past psychiatric history, like prior traumatic events, can cause someone to react differently than someone who didn't have those events. Makes sense? Psych psychological mumbo-jumbo? As I said, every person is unique. Every person has a breaking point. Some people are stronger than others. The doctors that the defense put on looked at Michael Barrison as an individual differently than Schlesinger's general statements. They said that based on his past mental health issues, that specific things that were done to him caused him to react differently than others. The state's doctor never addressed Michael Barrison's unique circumstances. And again, let me point out an example why I think it's important. Cataract does something to both Mary Haskins Gray and Michael Barrison. Mary Haskins Gray is afraid. Michael Barrison crawls up in a fetal position, is inconsolable, and is crying hysterically. She testified that that happened numerous times. Clearly, Barrison is in a much different position than Haskins and everyone else at the farm. He's the owner of the farm. It's his business that they're attacking, not Gray's, not anyone else. He's the one responsible for protecting everyone. Most of the attacks are directed 
specifically towards him that he abuses horses, is a criminal, did insurance fraud, that he is the one that has bullied Canarac and threatened her life. All those false allegations were against him, not anyone else. They have a different impact on him and everyone else. The house that he fled was his house. Haskin was just a girlfriend. No history, no investment in that property. It makes a difference. If I'm some place that I don't own and something happens, I could just leave. It's different when you leave your own house. It causes you to react differently. Michael Barrison had no one there to help him or protect him. Mary Haskins Gray had Barrison. Mary Haskins Gray had her father come and try to protect him. Michael Barrison was in a unique position. Michael Barrison was the one that Robert Goodwin took his hand, made it in the gesture of a gun, pulled the trigger, and told him the day before the shooting to get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. After laying a foundation of the facts that contributed to the defendant's mental state on the day of Lauren Canerac's shooting, Edward Blankus continues his summation by arguing that the jury should view those facts in the context of Michael Barrison's unique psychiatric history. I submit, ladies and gentlemen, that his unique psychiatric history, the fact that the majority of threats were directed at him and his business, and the, one, and the fact that he was the sole person responsible puts him in a much different category. And when you're discussing his mental state and what effect these things had on him, you know, don't go with Schlesinger's general statement that, well, the other people were afraid too. Totally different. No one else, ladies and gentlemen, were calling people to try to get help like Michael Barrison was. No one fled his own home. No one hired a private investigator to do background checks on them. No one spent $5,000. Think about this. When the prosecutor maybe comes up with some cockamamie story with regards to a financial issue or problem. Steve Tarsus testified that Barrison was worth millions. No one else filed a complaint with SafeSport against Cataract. Now, I'm sure the prosecutor's going to make some argument with regards to why this happened. If the prosecutor suggests to you that the motive is that Michael Barrison thought a complaint was going to be made against him with SafeSport, and that's the reason why he wanted to kill Lauren Cataract, then when he says those words, I want you to think, well, Michael Barrison filed a complaint against Lauren Cataract. Did she have a motive to kill him? You can't have it both ways. That's what I'm saying. Think about everything that's said to you. No one else called 911 on four separate occasions. No one else was turned away 
and felt as helpless when the police and the Morris County Prosecutor's Office wouldn't help him, didn't even want to look at, at the documents, the things that he had masked, masked in this investigation that he was doing on counteract. He even personally went to the Washington Township Police Department and tried to plead with them for help. What impact would that have on someone different than everyone else? When you call the people that are supposed to protect you and they do nothing, what impact does that have on someone's state of mind? He also hired a personal security guard, Mr. Davison, to sit in his truck to uh, guard the stable area. I submit he had a lawyer write letters and, and serve a complaint. That coupled with all the things that Counteract was doing specifically to him puts him in a unique category that you should consider. <clears throat> Remember, what was Counteract's motivation? She admitted to a plan to destroy him and the business. That plan included attacking him on social media, accusing him falsely of neglecting horses, insurance fraud, falsely claiming bullying and threatening her life. She had a plan to scare him. <coughs> Remember the text that I questioned her about? We have to scare Michael Barrison. And then the various texts after that, where she's talking about Michael Barrison being scared. Totally different circumstances. <coughs> I submit that she had a plan to cause him to flee his own house by scaring him, talking about weapons incessantly, sleeping with a gun underneath her pillow, having two guns, two nine-millimeter guns, talking about killing the king, sacrificing the queen, destroying the castle, talking incessantly about going to war. It's time. War's inevitable. Why would anyone say those things unless they were trying to drive someone over the edge. What possible legitimate purpose would they have attacking him like that? She knew he was emotionally unstable. She knew she was scaring him. She knew that all the things that she were doing, like posting his own words and taunting him with them, would cause him to go insane. Why would someone do that? Take private conversations and use them against that individual. What effect would that have on someone who's becoming emotionally unstable? Does he think he's hearing voices? Does he think he, everything that he says is being recorded? Is that a, a rational assumption? Does he know for sure? What effect would that have on someone's mental state? And there's testimony that the majority of that taunting was directed specifically towards him. What would it take for someone to leave their own home? Think about that. What would it take for someone to flee their own home? What effect did Cataract and Goodwin and the father have on kicking him out of the place that he fled to, the stable area? He's now sleeping on a couch, living out of a suitcase in a stable area. She made him homeless. And, and someone may think or argue, well, you could have just gone to a hotel. That's, that's what one of the town people said. He can't leave his property. 
He's afraid that Lauren Canarat Goodwin and the father are going to destroy his business. People are afraid that they're going to burn down the barn or hurt their horses. Why is Cox sleeping in front of her horse in the stables? He can't leave all this. This is what he built up from nothing, ladies and gentlemen. He's already fled his house. Do you think it's realistic to think that he would just leave the property and leave it to Cataract Goodwin and the father? You heard testimony from numerous witnesses that he wasn't sleeping. He was wandering the property at night trying to protect everyone. Who does that? And finally, there's evidence that Cataract set forth steps to have DCPP come onto the property. Batterstone told all the experts, the defense and the state expert, that he overheard her talking about sexual misconduct. And that's when he had the breakdown. What's odd, based on Dr. Schlesinger's testimony, is that no one, including Schlesinger, is saying that Michael Barrison is faking his physical and psychological deterioration in the days leading up to the incident. Numerous people took this stand, put their hand on the Bible, and testified to Michael Barrison's decline and failing mental state prior to the incident. It's not something we're setting forth after the fact, prior to the incident. And the prosecutor could have called all these people if he wanted to give you the real picture. All of those witnesses, and I think I put on 23, 24 different people, all of them testified to various observations they, they made about his decline. Some of them were graphic. I'll name a few. Not sleeping, not bathing, eating, wandering the property at night, unable to carry on a conversation, incapable of simple business, handling simple business affairs, crying, sobbing, hysterically, in a fetal position. Those people compared Barrison before and after Lauren Cataract's attacks. He went from this confident, elegant, dignified man to a distraught, disheveled person, pacing aimlessly, mumbling to himself, was described as catatonic. If you recall, the town official, Ms. Gibbs Cook, said on the 6th she could barely recognize who he was from how she had known him before. She described him as undone. Her words, many of those people who had known him for years in seeing this decline thought he was going to kill himself. And numerous people, Olympic athletes testified that they called and they tried to console him. He was unconsolable, all because of Cataract Goodwin and the father's attack. Justin Hardin, who was a state's witness, who has known Michael Barrison for 17 years, described him as out of his mind. Others testified he was unable to function. The one thing Justin Hardin said, which to me hits home, is Michael Barrison's love for horses, love for riding. He stopped riding. He stopped teaching, training people and horses. That speaks volume as to his mental decline. All these people testified as to Michael Barrison's 
systematic destruction of him, all at the hands of Cataract. It was her plan, and her plan worked. They drove him crazy. The state wants you to believe that Michael Barrison, after experiencing this level of deterioration, was capable, after the severe beating that he got from Robert Goodwin, after he was choked unconscious, how somehow, miraculously, he flipped the switch and had the presence of mind to make up a story. I don't remember the event. This is totally inconsistent with every piece of evidence that has been put before you. The prosecutor is going to suggest, I assume, that after all of this, that Michael Barrison should be taken with regards to his statements as an admission of his guilt. When he starts talking about that, recall all the evidence of his mental state when these statements were allegedly made. I submit, ladies and gentlemen, that every single person, the police officers, the medical people that were treating him, everyone had indicated that when Michael Barrison was asked about the events, he had no recollection. So his rambling statements, I had a good life, they destroyed my life. What does that mean? Under those circumstances, in his condition, I submit it's a, the, the ramblings from a man suffering from a mental breakdown, a man who's delusional. What's outrageous, ladies and gentlemen, is the prosecutor's attempt to argue that Michael Barrison's statement at the hospital, I'm sorry, was an admission of guilt. That detective couldn't testify to the circumstances where the statement was made. Any context, he didn't even know the exact words. He said, well, words to the effect, what should concern you, is that the detective didn't remember who was there, whether or not he was talking to anyone, and doesn't remember the exact words. I ask you to remember that with regards to that statement, I'm sorry, it was not contained in his detailed notes that he took contemporaneous with everything that was going on. He also never put or testified on direct examination that before that statement, Michael Barrison was injected with 100 milligrams of fentanyl. Fentanyl prior to that statement. Why didn't the prosecutor bring that out? Isn't that important? Aren't those details something that you should consider? Before you're deciding whether or not that's an admission of guilt, don't you think you should have all the facts? And even though there is no burden on the defense, I don't need to do or say anything. Don't you think things like that would be important in you assessing what that statement meant? Why is the defense constantly bringing out things differently than what's originally proposed to you? I ask you to recall also that that report was dated over two months later. Tried to explain to all the report. There's no evidence of that. You have his testimony. The next cop that took the stand, I asked him the same thing with regards to the date of the report, and he says that's when the report was written. What's going on here, ladies and gentlemen? And if you believe what every medical person said about Michael Barrison 
not remembering the specific incident, I submit, you can't be sorry for something you don't remember. And again, this is the linchpin of the state's doctor's diagnosis. That's all he talked about. You have two doctors that the defense put on that addressed this issue, addressed, again, the concern of the state doctor that someone charged with a criminal defense may feign symptoms, may fake. Dr. Schlesinger never suggested that Barrison was faking the things that happened to him before the incident. He focused solely on the statement, I don't remember. Recall the actual testimony, the evidence. The first officer on the scene, Barrison's partially conscious. These aren't defense witnesses, although I had to bring it out. The second officer, incoherent. The third officer, I need to wake up. Is this real? Someone questioning their reality. Every medical person, and the prosecutor was not able to put one person on to dispute this. Every single medical person that talked to Michael Barrison said that he could not recall the event. They described him as confused, and even said he was in an altered mental state. First aid, ambulance people, EMS, hospital personnel, and even the doctor at the jail days later said the same thing. If Michael Barrison wanted to lie about something to protect himself because he's tried with a criminal offense, don't you think, ladies and gentlemen, this bright, intelligent man could come up with something better? Use your common sense. He could have made up a much better story. Cataract had a gun, I shot her. I was getting the hell beaten out of me. The dog was mauling me. I shot her in self-defense. Don't you think he could have come up with something better than I don't remember? That ties his hands. It doesn't help him. It puts me in a position where I'm chasing windmills like Don Quixote. I don't remember doesn't help him. What it does, ladies and gentlemen, it gives you a basis to believe Dr. Simring and Dr. Haskin. If that's not enough, I submit there's overwhelming evidence that that statement is being, uh, is truthful. Both Simring and Hassan looked at that issue and believed and testified that that loss of memory is real and was either caused by the beating he took to his head or the psychological breakdown. Dr. Hassan even did specific psychological tests to test for feigning. Dr. Schlesinger never did those. Why not? Because it doesn't fit in with his scenario to help the prosecutor. But Dr. Hassan testified that he did those tests, and those tests indicated that there was no feigning. Dr. Schlesinger didn't take those results like Hassan did and say, oh, that's wrong, uh, those are inaccurate. You can't throw out your common sense. You need to look at all the evidence. You need to rely on the most qualified and experienced experts with no agenda. In closing, I ask you to listen carefully to the judge's instruction on insanity. Once the defense establishes by the preponderance of the evidence, the state, as it always does, has the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt 
That burden never shifts. That is what this country, our legal system, is based upon. I submit, ladies and gentlemen, the defense has established clearly that Michael Barrison was insane at the time of the incident. He was suffering from a mental defect, a delusional disorder, and did not know the nature and quality of his actions, and did not know right from wrong. What Lauren Canarac, Robert Goodwin, and the father did to him was horrible, horrible. They had a plan to destroy Michael Barrison. Don't let them use you to do the job, to finish the bastard. Find Michael Barrison not guilty. It is the right and just thing to do. Thank you. And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison. Join us on our next installment as we begin our presentation of the closing argument from Prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn. If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and the trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison.